Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, Commissioning Arts Editor in the London office. And I'm Lila, the FT's Community Editor in New York. First up, we're focusing on one book and the conversations it raises. That book is Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. And later on, I'll be chatting with my colleague James Fontanella Khan. We just published an investigation in FT Weekend magazine together about workplace mental health. So on our most recent episode, our summer book special, I was saying, Lila, that one of the books I really was looking forward to reading this summer was Three Women. Um, And since we spoke then, I have read it and loved it. Yeah, you know, in that conversation, you also successfully convinced me to also read the book. (laughs) And uh, we've been talking about it. And we thought we need to track down Lisa Tadeo and talk to her about what it was like to write about desire, what it was like to spend eight years working on a book about women's sex lives. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of book that you really want to know what the process of writing it was like. Not only because it's just come out this week and there's loads of buzz around it, but also because it's a really sort of strange hybrid book. Yeah. It reads like a novel, but it's based on years and years of reporting on the intimate lives of these real women. So it's kind of a brilliant example of literary nonfiction. Yeah, so she was a magazine feature writer for many years and then was approached by Simon & Schuster to write a book about whatever she wanted. So she spoke with hundreds of people and she ended up focusing on these three women. And each of them delves into these themes of desire, like not just for sex, but also for love and admiration and understanding. And it was a really interesting book. So I took the subway up to Midtown to her publisher, Simon & Schuster's offices. I braved Times Square (laughs) to sit down with Lisa and talk about the book. And uh, it turned out to be a very candid, broad, and uh, fascinating interview. Great. Let's get into it. Lisa, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you because uh, you wrote this incredibly unique narrative nonfiction book that reads like a novel, uh, Three Women, which you researched and wrote in eight years. And it's the story of three real women who you spent a lot of time sort of embedding with and getting to know, who let you into their head, and about sort of how they feel desire. And so... um, where did you go? How do you start? It seems so broad. Yeah. No, I mean, and it was the hardest part was finding people. It was shockingly hard. And to find those three, every sort of part of it was long. And while I was with one person, I was looking for another person. So it was just like, it was constant. I had made two cross country trips, like just kind of looking for people. I would like go into bars or like restaurants and literally ask someone like, <laughs> do you have a compelling story about sex or desire? Wow. I know. It was nuts. And also it's like, it's not like you're writing an article for a magazine. Yeah. It's like, you don't know what to say. It's not like I'm writing this for Esquire and it's going to come out in October. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm working on a book, I think. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if you'll be one page or six pages or like the whole book. I just don't know. So that was almost impossible. Um, so I moved to Indiana kind of like a little bit blindly. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I have to get out of New York because New York is at once the sort of like epicenter of everything. But it's also kind of impossible to live in New York and have your own world and then also look for people outside of that. Right. 
So on one of those cross-country trips that I had made before I moved to Indiana, I met this doctor in, in Indiana who was um, conducting these hormone treatments and these sort of trials on his patients. And so he gave me a number of names of women who he had asked and would they want to talk to me? And they did. And I started this kind of like informal discussion group where then the women would like bring their friends and they would just come and uh, we'd all just talk. You know, we'd just like drink white wine and like have mixed nuts and stuff mm -hmm. and just talk. And Lena walked in and like right away I was just like, oh my gosh, there was just something about her that was so sad looking but mm. also hopeful and there was just something about I could just feel it and she started talking and the first thing that she said well, one of the first things was that her, she had been in this like passionless marriage for 11 years her husband had just told her that he didn't want to kiss her on the mouth that he never had right. that the sensation offended him and their couples therapist was like well that's okay you know the f the way you feel about wet wool is the way he feels about kissing you and that was crazy to me so then the other thing was that she was about to embark on a intimate relationship with her high school lover mm. and so those two things I was like okay one it's compelling to the immediacy like this is about to happen and then another aspect of it was that she had no one to talk to about it like right. her community her family like like you know a lot of people who are kind of having illicit relationships they have friends who are like yeah okay let's talk about it but she would have had people in her church group for example like those were her friends so it was just a perfect storm of her wanting to talk and me wanting to listen yeah so Lena was the first person that you found. Can you tell us about the other two women? So Maggie um, in North Dakota, Fargo, was a young woman who was in her um, early 20s when I met her. And I read about her story in a local newspaper. And the trial had just ended for her who uh, she had come forward about a teacher with whom she allegedly had a sexual relationship with when she was 16, 17. And he had just been named Teacher of the Year. And then the third woman is Sloane, who is an entrepreneur in the Northeast. She is very like glamorous and elegant, and she's in this small community. And she, I heard two rumors about her. The first being that her husband liked to watch her sleep with other men in front of him. And the second was that he wanted to have sex with her every day. And not only did she allow it, but she liked it. Mm. And like the sort of shock with which that was conveyed to me, it was like an angry thing. So with Sloan, and it became with the other two as well, with Sloan, it was almost as much their story that was compelling as the reaction and yeah. judgment of other people and mainly women. Right. What did you think that anger came from around Sloan? I think that, you know, I mean, she's, beautiful um her husband tells her every day that she's his fantasy like there might be other things going on but she's his like sexual fantasy and I think that there's you know there's also they have sex every day like I think that that's everyone's like why are there no happy marriages I'm like Sloan's is a happy marriage so I think that there's a jealousy and I think when people are jealous or shamed by their own stories they project that onto others yeah um, on that note, I would love for you to read a small portion of your book yeah. that relates to that a little bit, and I'll just set the scene quickly. So you start your whole book off with this prologue uh, in which you tell the story of your mother as a young woman. Every day when she left her house to walk to work, there was an old man waiting outside her apartment, <laughs> and every day he walked behind her all the way to work, and he's masturbating. Mm -hmm. 
And it was Italy in the 1960s, and she just let it happen for a number of months. And uh, presumably because the police wouldn't care or mm-hmm. do anything, and uh, there wasn't much she could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows what else. Like It sounds mm-hmm. like you didn't have a chance to talk with her about it before she yes. passed. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you'll read this part of the prologue, because I think it speaks to a lot of the themes in the book. Yeah, um, sure. I think about the fact that I come from a mother who let a man masturbate to her daily. And I think about all the things I have allowed to be done to me. Not quite so egregious, perhaps, but not so different in the grand scheme. Then I think about how much I have wanted from men, how much of that wanting was what I wanted for myself, from other women even, how much of what I thought I wanted from a lover came from what I needed from my own mother. Because it's women in many of the stories I've heard who have greater hold over other women than men have. We can make each other feel dowdy, Poorish, unclean, unloved, not beautiful. In the end, it all comes down to fear. Men can frighten us, other women can frighten us, and sometimes we worry so much about what frightens us that we wait to have an orgasm until we are alone. We pretend to want things we don't want so nobody can see us not getting what we need. (laughs) Yeah, I love that quote. And I just wanted to hear from you a little bit about What compelled you to start the book there? The prologue and the epilogue were the last things I wrote. One of the reasons was because these women had given so much of themselves to me that I kind of felt like I just wanted their stories to speak for themselves. But then at the same time, I was like, you know, maybe it needs a frame just in case the context was not enough. And the other thing, yeah, I just wanted to put myself out there in a somewhat open way and like you know some of my thoughts and feelings but the main thing I think was that I noticed how much like I say kind of in that passage how much women affect other women and like I think you know that we have daddy issues is so much a part of the national lexicon but you know nobody talks about mommy issues right and you know I had clearly had mommy issues have mommy issues you know like just to give you a a very um shocking example my own mother said to me and she kind of said it jokingly kind of but when you hear what it is you'll wonder how that could be a joke she said to me I don't think you'll be a good mother (laughs) which is like a shocking thing to say I mean she was Italian so there was a little bit of like you know but still it's like you know, shocking. So I think that other people have had more fucked up things done and said to them by their mothers and other people will say, oh my God, my mother's never said anything but positive things to me. But whether it's on the scale of great or kind of crappy, the effect is so wild. Yeah. So as you were reporting this over the course of eight years, did you feel at any point while you were living in Indiana four years in like, what am I doing? Yes. I mean, every day, <laughs> every literally every day, even towards the end. Uh, I mean, what I would do because I'm a neurotic Capricorn is like schedule my day like eight to nine post signs, nine to 11 be with Lena, mm. 11 to one transcribe Lena. Like there were no kind of breaks only because um, my contract was for two years. I was maybe like a year past it by the time I was sort of in the middle of Lena. So I was just like, I have to like get this done. This is, and I was a very like, you know, organized person who would never miss a deadline. And I was missing the biggest deadline of my life. So yeah, I never didn't doubt myself. 
When did it start to feel like it was taking a form? A year ago. Because the first draft I handed in, I think about a year ago, was like 10 to 15 people, some of them men. And, you know, it was a lot of the people that I had that I thought were going to be in it two in particular, a man and a woman, dropped off, one after six months and the other after like eight months of reporting and having moved to be near them. So there was a lot of, oh my gods. And there were multiple people beyond that who were less time and less compelling. So yeah, a year ago, I guess, so I handed in this draft and it was, I knew it wasn't right. It was just had a lot of information. It was like, 400,000 words longer than the book is. (laughs) I'm sure my editor was really excited about that. Yeah, so it was just all over the place. But these three women were the largest sections. They were just the ones who let me in the most. And logistically, moving from place to place, like, do you have a partner? Do you have children? Yes, I I got married and had a child during the course of the reporting process. And so towards the end, they moved around with me. My daughter the other day said, I miss the old house. And I was like, which old house? (laughs) Um, So yes, I think it continues to be difficult. My daughter um, cried, you know, yesterday when I left and she was like when are you going to be my mommy again and I was like oh my god um and I'm with her like every day but when I'm with her I'm like doing other stuff so I'm not entirely present so it's like really you know it's it's brutal yeah so you wrote a lot of this book and did most of the research before the me too movement started before times up started and it's publishing into a world that's like a little more aware of the ways in which women hold their suffering Mm mm-hmm There's a moment where one character, Lena, goes to what she thinks is going to be a party when she's in high school, and she's raped by three guys Mm -hmm. uh, in succession. Mm -hmm. And the scene just reminded me so much of the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford, Mm -hmm. who testified publicly Mm -hmm. on live TV that Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice nominee, had sexually assaulted her when they were teenagers. What has it been like to see these changes through the later stages of writing and publishing the book? It's been really interesting. I mean, like you said, when I started it, it wasn't a thing. And one of Sloan's, um, and it's not in the book because we cut a lot of stuff, but she's in a restaurant and this man, a friend of hers, walks in with another man. And the man that she's friends with, like, kisses her on the cheek and they hug. And then the other man who's a stranger um, says, where's my kiss? Where's my hug? And... You know, she was like three years ago or whatever. I would have just given him a kiss and a hug because like whatever. But I was just like, I don't even know you. Why would I kiss you? And that's, you know, I think there's stuff like that that's just, uh, yeah, people have changed. I felt really strongly in the book that all of the men were like living for themselves and the women were not. Mm -hmm. Although I will say that Sloane, her husband... You know, she's like, he comes up behind me every day when I'm like feeling like I'm getting old or I'm feeling like, you know, I drank last night and I can't drink at night and wake up in the morning and not look like shit. And he comes up behind me. He's like, you're beautiful. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever met. And she's like, he makes me feel like great every day. She's like, all right. So he wants me to have sex with guys in front of him. Like, all right, fuck it. And, you know, yes, it caused confusion and continues to, I'm sure. But it also, it's not like she goes and says, I don't want to do this. Why are you making me do this? It's confusing because it's, you know, it deviates from the traditional and people can judge it. But at the end of the day, she doesn't see it that way. Right. I finished the book feeling 
very like grateful that there was a book out there that describes some nuance uh, around women's desire, around sex, around unfulfilled something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I hadn't felt like I had read before. But and I also felt kind of sad. And I know we don't need things tied in a bow, but if these women represent desire as it is now, not all of it, but a lot of it felt kind of unfulfilled and disappointing. Maybe you didn't mean it to feel that way, but I'm curious I'm curious where you, where you wanted us to end because I kind of felt like um god, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, I, these women don't represent all of female desire, all of anyone's desire. Their stories spoke to me very powerfully of themselves. And so for me it was more like providing a window into one human or two or three human beings lives in such a kind of I wanted it to be nuanced I wanted to like break down and analyze every moment that that like either hurt them or or turn them on or made them feel alive and you know so I think there's moments there's heights of passion that all three of them reach that are amazing Lena for example her section I wrote the most sexually explicit because she told me those things verbatim she would send them to me over messages and she wanted to talk about every thrust you know and the reason she did was because she was finding herself in those moments she had been raped as you said as a teenager and she was now and her husband didn't want to kiss her so there were all these things that had completely annihilated her sense of self and her own desire that when she was with this man who she idealized since high school it was just so powerful for her yeah can I ask you about how you wrote about sex Mm-hmm. because I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I um, I don't know. It, it felt like you were in their heads. And yeah, and I'm curious, it must be hard to write about sex. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's one of the hardest things to write about in a way that's not cheesy. One of the reasons it feels like true to the women is because it was written by a woman. I think that, you know, I've yeah. read like all of the male writers that I've always loved, like, you know, in the past before kind of I started thinking about it more it was like Mailer and Updike and Salter, who I still think is one of the greatest short story writers. But those men wrote about sex in a very, very male way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't take into account so much what the woman is feeling and sometimes it can be so devoid of emotion because the men are devoid of that emotion during the act you know you know and I also I always invoke this quote but Woody Allen said in one of his films that there's no such thing as a bad orgasm which I don't think is true for women right I think that you can have an orgasm and be like it feels painful to my brain so regarding the sex I wanted to walk the fine line between clinical and profane And I mean, like, I didn't want to do either of those things. So I tried to use more movement and place and the movement of the bodies to do it more. And, you know, Lena also just the way that she described sex was the way that I wrote it. You know, she came from a very traditional Catholic family, yet she was feeling these intense feelings and loved every second of it and wanted to document it. And so that's why it came out like that. It came out like a woman's sense of sex. So it kind of also gave me a map and a guidebook for the way that I wanted to do it throughout, you know, the rest. Yeah. There was this one part where it just said, these are the things that Lena likes this man to do to her. And it's just a list (laughs) of like 20 things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, wow, that must have come straight from her. It did. I mean, it wasn't like, here is my list of 20 things. I was like, it would be like, this is my favorite thing. This is my, and every time there was a new favorite thing. Every time 
it grew, you know, and like the kisses would become different. They would go from romantic to just like sexual and they would like, and then they'd go back to romantic and she like would miss one when she had the other. So it was (laughs) so like somebody called her story pathetic to me, like while I was writing it. And I said, this is a friend of mine. And I was like, you do the same thing. Right. You know, and it's like, I related to almost everything she said, you know, and I might not have done some of the things and maybe I did worse things too, but there was no part of her story that I wasn't like, Oh my God, like I've felt that way. I have, my brain has gone in that direction and it's been in that kind of pain over something. And I think for Lena, I don't think it was Aiden, you know, and that's the other thing. It's like, why are these women doing these things for men? I think it was for the part of herself that was missing that had been stolen from her by what happened in her childhood by her mother, right? by her mother, not letting her go fishing with her father. By her father walking out the door, you know, and her just looking at it. She described the way she just looked at his back walking out the door. And like that just gave me chills, you know. And so I think she was looking for a part of herself that she never found. And she was finding it. And I don't think it was Aiden. I think it was like I think she was having sex with herself in a way. Yeah. Can I ask like what makes you tear up when you talk about that story? I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's just, well, I mean, I lost my parents. So I think anytime I say the word parent or dad or mom, I'm like, oh God. Right. But when it comes to Lena, the idea of her dad walking out the door and her looking at his back and just wanting to run after it. And it just stayed with her. Lisa Tadeo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. So listening to Lisa talking there, I was really struck by how frank she was about sexual desire and how really, you know, that's the project of of the book to to lay this stuff bare and, you know, how rare it is really to kind of see the inside of someone's life like that. Yeah, she talked a little in the conversation about places that I also noticed in the book where she was mentioning these little nuanced things that I had never heard anybody say out loud that go through people's thoughts. There was one where the man that Lena was having an affair with would kiss her one way and then he would kiss her the other way. And when he kissed her the other way, she would miss the first way. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and there, there are little points like that about women's desire that I just haven't read anywhere. Yeah. And how it's so kind of shape-shifting and unpredictable and... You know, I I guess the fact that she was so embedded and she spent so many hours talking to these women um, that she kind of really got down to the nitty gritty. When you say shape-shifting and unpredictable, what do you mean? I guess, I mean, you know, the desire is for one thing and then the desire is for another thing. It's not kind of simple and it's not consistent, maybe. And I think with Lena, you really see that. And it's like she has this kind of voracious appetite for Aiden Um, that's kind of unleashing all of this desire that was maybe pent up and kind of sublimated before. Um, She wants everything, but she's also... What she wants changes. Yeah, or contradicts. Mm. And it struck me listening to that, that um, it seemed like Lena's story was the one that had really captured Lisa. It's definitely the one that she seemed to speak about the most. And I think... This, this thing of her having this really sort of carnal appetite for this man who's not her husband. And yet, you know, like she said at the end, which I thought was so true, is it's kind of not even really about him. It's about her and her sort of finding herself and her coming to terms with this awful, you know, experience of being raped as a teenager and kind of what that does to a woman's desire as you grow up. Like, how do you relate to sex after you've gone through something like that? 
Yeah, Lena's felt to me like the clearest representation of how things in childhood affect things in adulthood. Like, she was such an expression of unfulfilled desire. Mm. And it was probably desire for something other than the men, but it was redirected towards the men. And Mm. I thought at the end, as Lisa was reflecting, that she wasn't necessarily having sex with this man, and it wasn't really about him. It was sort of her having sex with herself. Mm. Like, that gets to the point of a lot of this book, which is, okay, there are these men and they're important figures and the women's lives are wrapped around them in different ways. But in many ways, it's also not about them. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's really a portrait of the women. And I think female desire is so difficult to kind of pass from how women are portrayed sexually in a sort of culture where we're looking through a male lens so we kind of know what a sexy woman looks like but actually how a woman might feel sexually is not something that is so often explored and I think she kind of really gives that the space and really goes into such nuance it felt just I mean, it felt totally fresh to me. And it was also just such a page turner. I just really wanted to find out in each of their (laughs) stories kind of what happened. I know. One thing I left the book and the conversation with Lisa feeling unsure about was the idea that women are each other's own worst enemies. There was a point about women judging other women that felt a little outdated to me. Mm. You know, I find my female friendships some of my most supportive and loving and enabling. But in her reporting, she didn't find that to be the case. No, I mean, definitely these women are, you know, what they have in common is their kind of loneliness. They're pretty isolated in how they feel. It doesn't feel like any of them really has a proper confidant. You know, it feels like maybe the reason that they spoke to Lisa so much is because they wanted to talk to somebody about how they felt. Yeah. The thing that she said, though, about how women can make other women feel dowdy, that struck me as being really true. I think there's something in that sense of, like, women often holding themselves up to each other. Like, often I think when women are kind of getting dressed up or wanting to look and feel beautiful, it's just as much about other women as it is about men. And this is like in a, you know, I'm speaking from a a context of, of kind of heterosexual desire. Like, often I feel like I'm getting dressed for other women. Yeah, that's definitely true. The other thing that it reminds me of is after the U.S. election in 2016 that Hillary Clinton lost, um, how much conversation there was about the fact that actually white women were voting overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. As in, there's a lack of solidarity, do you mean? Or Yeah, and also that we still see each other in the way that like a very masculine society reflects us. Um, so it's easy for us to judge each other on those standards because we also see parts of ourselves in each other in a way that we don't have to do with men mm. or we don't think to do with men. Yeah, maybe it's also something to do with kind of not having the power of, as far as gender goes, kind of being the underdog. You're vying with each other for positions For very limited power. spots. Yeah, it's a kind of yeah. divide and rule kind of thing. Yeah, I like that point. But it goes against the idea of a sisterhood or any kind of solidarity. But both can be true. Mm. You know, it's an it's an and and. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. As my therapist mother likes to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even in the way that you were talking about Lena being inconsistent, that she wanted one thing and another at the Mm. same time, even though those things contradicted. I think that's the case with uh, so many things in the world, but especially around females understanding of themselves and their role in the world. Like we're both 
taking on whatever we've been taught and trying to fight it at the same time. Mm. And uh, that stuff can get all mixed up. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. So obviously the reviews of this book have started coming out and they've been mixed. One thing that has been levelled at it is that this is not some kind of representation of female desire as every woman feels it. You know, these are three cis, basically straight white women in America. I mean, what do you think about that criticism of the book? I, I think it's a good criticism. It sort of nagged at me while I was reading the whole time. Um, Mm. especially as I was trying to figure out what Lisa's intention was as a writer. Was she trying to represent women's desire in some bigger way, or was she just simply trying to tell these three stories and have them reflect whatever we wanted them to? Mm. It's so interesting that you say it nagged at you, because I would say I was aware of it, like that they were all quite similar in this kind of demographic. But at the same time, I sort of... I didn't mind that because I don't think I at all read it as some kind of holistic representation of women. I think I did just think these are three women, no way related to each other apart from thematically, but even that is quite loose. And I think in the interview she describes them as little windows that you're looking onto these lives. Yeah, Lisa does say in her interview that these stories aren't supposed to reflect all of women's desire. And I'm sure it's easy in the reviews of it for that to become the narrative about what the book is about. So I can imagine that that's a fine line. But as we talk increasingly about intersectionality and how gender is also affected by race or ethnicity or economic class... Um, it just made me a little uncomfortable. Like, we're white women talking about it. She's a white woman writing about it. Of course, these stories will appeal to us, but there's no one else in the room. Mm. I guess I don't think there's anything invalid about telling those stories. For me, I think the problem arises if you're kind of posing as doing something that has some kind of universality yes. or, like, total representation to it. And that's not necessarily, you know, her saying... I'm not doing that isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that's not what the book's doing. And so in a way, maybe some of those criticisms are fair ones, but it comes down to interpretation. I just didn't read it as something that was trying to make any kind of definitive sweeping points about female desire as a whole. I kind of felt like I was delving into these three very particular worlds and these three very particular experiences. I guess the fact that as you're reading it, you're also kind of constantly reminded these are not literary characters, these are real people, all this stuff is true. It has that kind of frisson to it and it makes it feel like very specific. Yeah, and maybe the fact that it's sort of the first of its kind Mm. puts it in a difficult position because it's expected to represent all sorts of things when really it's not necessarily trying to. Totally. So, Lila, you have a story that came out this week um, and one that I understand was very many months in the making. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah. So my colleague in New York, James Fontanella Khan, uh, is our corporate deals editor. And he and I began talking about doing a reader-driven investigation last year, um, which means an investigation that had our readers' knowledge at their core. So we knew that stress and burnout was increasing in corporate jobs around the world, and we felt like it needed a critical eye. Mental health is a serious issue and one that's often treated with kid gloves. Mm. So in November, we asked our readers how their employers were handling stress and burnout, 
And their response made clear that the answer to that question was badly, Mm. Um, like overwhelmingly insufficiently. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the results are on the cover of FT Magazine this week. And uh, James and I got together in the studio to tell the story of how we put this investigation together. Great. Well, let's have a listen. James, hi. Hi, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good, how are you? Good, thanks. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, same. Um, I am wondering if you remember where this idea of mental health and investigating mental health came from. So I cover deals for a living. Um, I'm in this kind of crazy world of mergers and acquisitions. I spend most of my evenings meeting sources in bars and going out for dinner. And one thing that kind of a recurring theme, apart from trying to you know weasel out some information from people, is you tend to share stories and you get to know these people on a more personal level. I've been covering this for now five years, and the levels of stress and burnout it's sort of becoming a noticeable trend amongst people I actually dealt with regularly. And then something that came out and throughout the news is like we, we saw a number of lawyers in particular committing suicide, and yeah. that was kind of shocking. And and so. I thought we could explore that and maybe use our readers to find more about this topic. Yeah. My job is figuring out ways that we can use our readers in our investigations. And a lot of times we are, you know, at the Financial Times reporting on topics that our readers are experts in or have a lot of insight on or have tips about. And so, like, how do we open that line of communication so that we're in conversation? Absolutely. So this is what we did. We put together a call out. It was just a little survey form that we published on our site. And we said, sort of, we're looking into what companies do to support your mental health. Help us investigate. And also, we all, didn't we also ask them about if they ever felt discriminated because of mental health? Yes. Because that, to me, was one of the reasons people weren't coming out was they were scared they were going to lose a promotion or a bonus. Yeah. Were you surprised by their response? Well, we had nearly 500 people yeah. got back to us. That was surprising to see so many people open up and like share very, very personal stories. Yeah. Uh, some of them were anonymous. Others were actually very open about their names, where they worked, what they did. And it was honestly very touching. Right. They came from like more than 40 different countries across different professions from, yes. you know, professors. We had people working for industrial companies, scientists. You know, it was just a musician. I mean, it was really fascinating to see the breadth yeah. Um, of the response. So. Yeah. And so two-thirds of them said that their work had a somewhat to extremely negative effect on their health, and 44% said they don't think mental health is taken seriously by their organization, which felt very high. And also half of them said that either they don't know where to go at work or they don't have anywhere to go if they need support. So we thought, okay, we obviously need to look into this. We knew that mental health is sort of a thing that a lot of places are reporting on and a lot of companies are talking about. But the question was really, like, if you dig down, burnout, overwork, depression, anxiety, are those things actually taken seriously or are they just sort of buzzwords? Absolutely. That, that's the one thing that, you know, we wanted to try to break through that and try to get deeper into the subject. Yeah. So as we saw these themes in the responses, one of the people that kept coming up was this man named Gabe McConnell, who had, about a month before we had put the survey out, died by suicide in the parking lot of his law firm, Sidley Austin, in Los Angeles. And uh, his widow had put out a piece in the American Lawyer magazine, and it was called Big Law Killed My Husband. And it was about how there were so many places where he could have been helped 
where he wasn't. And that, like, ultimately, a number of things caused this perfect storm that got her to lose him, but that, like, the culture had to change, and it was really an emergency. And we were really moved by that, and we were surprised that actually it came up from a number of respondents specifically pointing to this story. So we requested to go out there, and it was eye-opening. Yeah, we traveled to L.A. after contacting his wife, Joanna, and Joanna, with her warmth and the warmth of also of her mom, we spent many, many, many hours kind of getting to know Gabe and learning about his story. Yeah, you know, her and her mother sat next to each other and told the story of who Gabe was, which was a very open-hearted, seeming, warm mentor to many people in his office and personally, that he cared immensely about his work about law as a profession as opposed to just making money making money um, and about sort of bringing people up below him and making sure that they succeeded Uh, and she talked a little bit about the difficulty that he had over time and the signs that there were that he was struggling and how hard it can be to pick up on those and how complicated suicide is and depression is but that ultimately part of the problem for him was that there was a culture of bottling it up and just getting the work done and everybody else is working as hard as you and everybody else is also worried and so keep it to yourself. Yeah, and one thing that I think we tried to make clear throughout the piece, this is a problem that everybody's facing. I mean, the the World Health Organization said it costs, in terms of productivity, over a trillion dollars a year for everybody. And companies are where we spend most of our time, most of, of our adult life and if we don't fix the workplace, this is not going to be fixed at all. And it's a cultural issue, and uh, I think it's only getting worse. And we see it because people are sort of like always on, and the way that people interact in a workplace is sort of more intense, and there are fewer boundaries to it. And so it seems like these issues are getting worse. I remember Joanna gave us this binder at the end. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And you, we were going through it, and it was just people saying like, Thank you for that letter. Reading it saved my life. You know, like I felt just like Gabe and knowing that other people feel that way in itself was what I needed. So, yeah. So some of the themes that we were seeing in Gabe's story and we kept seeing reflected in this call out that we did were overwork. There being like a cultural stigma against talking about mental health, talking about burnout, talking about weakness of any kind. There being both pressure from the top to reach impossible goals, no matter where you are, and also very little reflection from the top of it being okay to be having a hard time. Absolutely. The lack of leadership in many ways. Exactly. And there not being clarity from the top that actually, if you're not doing well, that should be treated the same as if you've broken a leg. And I think this is at the heart of the problem. And this was the moment when we were talking to Joanna and her mom, where her mom said, if Gabe only had a heart attack, I mean, right. it would have saved him in many ways because he could have gone to the hospital, he would have got his heart fixed, and he would have had a lot of compassion. Mm-hmm. Instead, mental health, people don't want to talk about it. And when Joanna suggested that he might want to tell work that he needed to take some time off, he said, like, we need to keep this secret because otherwise... It could negatively impact my career. I think you said it would be the, end, be of the end of my career. career. And that, and whether that is actually true or not, right. we, we don't know that. But like the fact that he felt like that is a feeling I think that is shared by millions of people. Right. 
Um, and then the last thing that we saw more than we expected to was this idea that when people did come out, they were penalized and that actually there were situations in which people were demoted or fired or discriminated against on the basis of their mental health and in some cases where they were signing NDAs. Absolutely. Um, were forced to sign NDAs to sweep that under the rug. Reinforcing the silence and the taboo through these NDAs. Exactly. And that was kind of very shocking in how it's institutionalized. Right especially at many of these law firms where secrecy is paramount. Right. One of the things that I remember that stands out to me is when somebody said, actually, it's in the company's interest to make sure that nobody's talking about this because once one person feels comfortable saying, you know what, I'm burned out, I can't live like this, it sort of gives permission to your other employees to do the same. And that's really a strange way and not an effective way to deal with your employees. Like at the end of the day, that's what makes them burn out. That's what makes them leave. You end up losing more money and more resources and the happiness of your employees if you think that way. And this is, again, one of the big goals of our story is to get companies to realize that dealing and preventing mental health is actually good for the bottom line. It's like you'll make more money. It's like if your employees are happy, if your employees are healthy, both physically and mentally, they will give back more. And it actually will make your company richer. It will make the CEOs bring home more money. If you needed an economic incentive rather than, more importantly, a moral one, there you go. The evidence is in front of you. We also talked to two companies that stand out to me. The first was Lloyd's. This is the U- UK bank, right? Yes, the UK bank. Uh, Antonio Horta Osorio is the CEO at the helm. A few years ago when he took over, he actually took some time off for, I think it was stress-based insomnia was what they called it, but he sort of describes it in many interviews as sort of he burned out. And having gone through it, he went back to his position much stronger and much better and has succeeded in many ways. And part of what he has implemented is the sense that like, okay, this is an open issue. Like this is something that I went through. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to tell it publicly. I'm going to tell it internally. And I'm going to make sure that all of you know that like we care about you. And by talking about it, he's breaking that stigma. If the boss is talking openly about mental health and his own personal problems, then everybody else can do it. And, And in our call out, so many people, even people who didn't work at Lloyd's, told us how inspiring that was. Yeah. The other example that I really find interesting is Prudential, which is an insurance company. Uh, And they have a chief medical officer, which in itself is very interesting. His name is Andrew Crichton. And he, when he started, began to quantitatively measure employee productivity and well-being. So he used an employee questionnaire and he gave some incentives. So like 80% of people were actually filling it out. And he was tracking well-being and productivity using that questionnaire and and happiness and um, asking like very specific questions. So they would ask questions and then they would see where people were unhappy and then they would provide services to help with those things. And then they could continue to actually see the outcome and the productivity changes based on how that questionnaire was answered over time. So it gave just like another quantitative data point for them to bring to the top to say, actually, this is working. Our retention is better, happiness is higher, and productivity is higher. And I thought, like, that's the kind of thing that should be done, especially at big companies. That's correct. And that was very, very helpful to learn that. Yeah. 
So, Lila, how do you feel now that the piece is out? I feel uh, relieved that it's out there (laughs) and uh, hopeful that it'll encourage CEOs and regulators to find better solutions, honestly, and ready to keep reporting this out. Well, Lila, it's such an amazing piece of work. So please, everyone, go out and read it. Thanks, Um, Chris. It's so detailed and so wide-ranging. And, you know, I I just I look forward to seeing what the impact is. And it was great to hear you two sort of talking about how it came about. And it made me wonder, you know, when you work on something for that length of time, do your thoughts about mental health change over that period? Yeah, you know, it just becomes more complicated (laughs) Mm. the more you learn, right? It becomes more nuanced. Like, whose job is this? Is it the job of uh, the person to speak out when they're having a hard time? Is it the job of the company to make sure that there are resources available or to create an environment in which the person is comfortable speaking out into? Is it the job of a family to look out for your loved Mm. ones? Is it the job of the healthcare system to ensure that when they're telling you, for example, bad news about your heart or your liver or a cancer, that they're also giving you mental health support? Is it the job of the regulators to ensure that treatment is available and good treatment is available for mental health issues as available as physical health treatment is? And the answer is all of the above. (laughs) Mm. Um, So everybody says with these things, like, there's no one silver bullet. And I hate that phrase. But really, these things have to work in tandem. And something that you said in your conversation with James really struck me. I think you said all of this stuff is getting worse, essentially. Absolutely. And it also reminded me of a BuzzFeed article about, um, I think it was called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, uh, that went viral. It was pretty early in the year, in early January, I think. Yes, by Anne Helen Peterson. Mm. Essentially saying the same thing, that things are getting worse. Yeah, that story went nuts. Um, And, you know, some of it was, it was very long and sort of oversimplified a complicated issue. But the point that stood out to me is that now working bleeds into every facet of your life. So keeping up your social media presence is sort of working. When you're on your phone, you're getting email alerts reminding you of your to-do list all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of us have jobs in the gig economy where there's no delineated endpoint to your day. You can just keep going. So there's like no clear line between on and off. Yeah, and you might have to keep going because jobs are less certain, less stable. Um, there There are fewer kind of secure for life jobs that just doesn't really exist as a model anymore, which I guess is where the kind of generational point comes in that maybe we're used to this level of kind of insecurity. Definitely. And that that does erode your mental health, I think. Absolutely. I mean, wages are stagnating. The promise of retirement is shaky <laughs> mm. at best for us, although it was, uh, it was not so for our parents. Um, we have higher student loans. So to protect ourselves, we take on more work. Mm. And in many ways, we don't realize we're burning out until one day we just do. Well, the piece is really great and Everybody should read it, as I say. Um, And you can read it at ft.com slash mental health. That's it for this week. We'll both be back in two weeks' time. Thank you to everyone who's got in touch. We really love hearing from you. And if you've read Three Women, we'd love to know what you thought of it or how you feel about women's desire and how it's depicted in art and pop culture. You can email the show at everythingelse at ft.com or you can find us both on Twitter. 
If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover our show. Everything Else is produced by David Waters with production assistance from Eileen Rodriguez. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. And our music is composed by Fatim. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.